I stumbled across something accidentally. My nephew was singing a song about David and Goliath. And maybe you've noticed this, and I think it's something we do all, all the time, and you see it everywhere, but we put these big, powerful stories of the Bible to these fast little upbeat songs or we animate them and make vegetables, talk about them. And in a way, it loses the depth. And I recognize we, we do this for our kids because we don't want to give our kids nightmares. I recognize that. Yeah, but I mean, he's talking about David and Goliath and how, how David finds a stone in a brook and David puts a stone in the sling and swings the sling round and round and the stone flies and hits the giant in the head and the giant comes tumbling down. It makes big fun out of this story that is really pretty intense. Now, maybe you remember this from your own childhood. How many of you have heard the song, um, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You know that song? We teach that to our kids. We learned it growing up. You know what happened when the walls came tumbling down? Everybody in the city was killed. And I'm not talking just the men who fought the battle. I'm talking about the women, the men, and the children, and all the livestock. And then they set it on fire, and the only thing they took out of it was some of the valuables that they were allowed to take and use for the Lord's service. How about Noah's Ark? I mean, we like to paint that on our kids' walls. And, you know, we buy the toys with the little animals that are smiling and all happy about being in the ark. And we, and we present this to our kids as if it's some great, happy time in the world and not the event in which all of life, except for those in the ark, were killed. I, I don't know what it was really like living in that day, but I can only imagine that as the rains began to fall and the flood began to rise, that there was probably people beating on the side of the ark screaming for salvation, for an opportunity to get in the boat. It was too late. And, and like I said, I, I, I recognize why we do it because we're, we're, we're trying to present it to our kids. And, and really in any other context, you know, these kind of stories, Mother Goose really has no, she's got nothing on us with our Bible stories, right? I mean, Jack falling down and breaking his crown and Humpty Dumpty being irreparably cracked, that's nothing compared to a murder of a giant to the decimation of a people in the city that they lived in or all of life being wiped out. I mean, really, it doesn't. And, and I, I, I think it's weird, you know, that we teach our kids stories about a lady who's probably going to die because she swallowed a fly. I mean, I think that's weird, but think about what it means that we're teaching our kids these things, that these horrible, horrific events took place. Think about it. Well, why do we do it? Because they need to know in all that went wrong and all the death and the horror, something has demonstrated to be terribly wrong. But in the midst of that is a powerful God being revealed. And today as we step into this next part of our series, you're not going to have an upbeat, happy song for me to sing to you. You're not going to have a tomato and a cucumber breaking it down. You've got me and the Scriptures painting a very stark picture of a very difficult time in which I don't want us to call, I don't want to call you to just remember an event. 
but to remember the God that planned and executed the event. It's the Passover. A celebration, probably the most important celebration that the Jews were given to celebrate. Leviticus chapter 23, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, the verses will be on the screen. We're working through the seven festivals or the seven feasts of of the Israelites, the, the seven festivals that they were given to celebrate. And last week we saw the first was the Sabbath, and that's different because it was a weekly festival in which people honored God in their rest of and trust in Him. And this week, as we look at the Passover, you'll see why we need to celebrate God in this call to worship. These, verse 4, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocation, convocations. These are the points and times in which He is setting aside a time for people to gather together. Holy convocations, gatherings with a very specific purpose to honor and glorify Him. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we'll deal with that next week. They're really one festival. It's one event. It's one festival, depending on some, some count Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread as, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread as two different festivals. I believe the Scripture is clear, and in other places in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, you can see that they happen at the exact same time. They, they are the same feast, and they're treated synonymously. But I'm going to break them up over the next two weeks because there's just no way to deal with all that they stand for and what they're about. And then we're going to focus on the Passover today. The Passover is the first of the annual feasts in which the Israelites were to celebrate. In fact, it was one of the feasts, In fact, as they moved into Jerusalem or moved into Israel and took the land that God had promised them and established the temple, it was one of the festivals that became a, a um, I'm forgetting the word now, it was one that they traveled to, to visit and, and, and practice and observe in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. All the men of age, of over the age of 13, after they had their bat mitzvah and, and had been called men, they were responsible. They had the duty to travel to Jerusalem and observe the Passover there. And that was one of the, the, one of the things about the Passover. The Passover being one of the first feasts, in fact, it was the when it was established, when God established it, it was the thing that basically established the Jewish calendar. He said, this is going to be your first month. You can read about it in Exodus when he established it. In Exodus uh, 12, I believe is what it is. You can read about it. You can see he says, this is going to be the first month. Basically saying, this is going to be the first day of the rest of your life. It's essentially what he was saying. And he was establishing for them a calendar by which they would ultimately plug in the rest of these festivals when they were given to them. The Passover is interesting and unique in that it was given to them before they were a covenant people. They were given the Passover celebration before God sat on, on top of the mountain and spoke to Moses and said, I am who I am and you're gonna, I'm going to be your God and, if, and you're going to be my people. And before they entered into that covenant relationship and they heard the voice of God and they saw the thunder and the lightning on top of the mountain and before they ever said, we want you to be our God, before that ever happened, the Passover was established. In fact, the Passover, the work of God in the Passover 
was the, the event or was his work in which he was enabling them to enter into covenant with him. Had it not been for his work in the Passover and him liberating and freeing his people from bondage, they would have remained under the bondage and slavery in Egypt and they wouldn't have been able to walk in freedom and walk as his covenant people. They wouldn't have been able to follow his law because they would have been in bondage to Egypt. Through the Passover, he freed them and enabled them to enter into covenant with him. Think about that and how that parallels our life in Christ and our life in knowing God. Well, let me just help you see the Passover. Let me, let me help you remember it and not any whitewashed um, story that's animated and, and maybe presented by our good friends at Universal or Warner Brothers. I don't know, remember who did the cartoon, but the reality is it's a horrific event, a horrific series of events. God had taken Moses and, and told Moses to go into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, the, the ruler of the Egyptians, to let his people go. Let my people go. Moses does it. And there's some arguments and stuff ahead of time, but, but God deals with Moses and, and God sends Moses and Moses goes and approaches Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, get lost. No. And God's like, okay, well, I'm going to bring some uh, plagues. I'm going to demonstrate my power against the Egyptians. And he brings ten plagues. It starts with turning the Nile to blood. In fact, the Nile, when it turned to blood, the fish in it died and the scripture says it stunk. I don't think that means it stunk like the beach has a smell or the river, you know, has a smell. I'm saying this was blood flowing through the Nile, fish dying, dead, rotting, corpses. It stunk of death. I don't know how close you've been to death, but it, I think it probably reeks. You ever smelled a mouse that's died and is rotting somewhere where you can't reach it or get to it? When we were in the hangar I worked at, it, they would die in the back corners and you could walk past the drain where they'd get stuck and they'd die. And it was horrible. Oh, it reeked. It starts with blood. Nine plagues later, that's, they go through blood. They go, uh, let me, let me just list them off here for you. I've got them. They go through blood. They, or the Nile turning to blood. He brings frogs, gnats, flies, disease on the livestock, incurable boils. I don't know what it's like to have an incurable boil, a sore that's just painful and sore and, and, and it's weeping pus and just nastiness. I don't know what that's like, but I can't imagine that it's a pleasant experience. Hail and, and thunder. In fact, the hail fell so hard that it demolished all the crops that had grown to that point. Locusts, the crops that were beginning to grow after the hail, beat it all down. Locusts came and ate it all up. And darkness. Now, I'm not afraid of the dark, but I'm thinking this is a darkness that's not like our normal darkness, like you turn the lights out in here and it's a little dark. I'm thinking this is darkness like you can't see in front of you dark. Like you're in a cave and you put your hand up and you can't see your hand because it's so dark. That's the darkness I think it describes. And, and each turn, Moses approaches Pharaoh and he tells him this is happening and God's doing it. And Pharaoh sets up his own little magicians and he says, look, my guys can do this too. You're not going anywhere. Well, that works a couple of times. And then it comes to the point where, where they can't do anything with the gnats. And, and, and they're like, this is God's hand. And Pharaoh says, I don't care. 
His heart is just hard and rebellious. And he says at times, Moses, you can take your people and go, but as soon as he feels that he's gotten his way, he changes his mind and says, you're not going anywhere. And God comes to the point in which He's going to bring the Passover into place and He warns His people and He, he tells Moses and Aaron, He says, speak to the people and tell them. On the tenth day of this first month, go out and, and men pick a lamb, a spotless and, and precious lamb and hold it till the fourteenth day. And on the fourteenth day at twilight, I want you to sacrifice that lamb. And I want you to, to, to cook that lamb on the open coals. And I want you to take the blood from, the, from that lamb that you've sacrificed. And I want you to put that blood on the doorpost and the lintels of your house. And then I want you to eat the lamb with your family. And if there's any left over, get rid of it. Don't store it. Don't keep it. Get rid of it. And just have unleavened bread. And he says, he says eat unleavened bread and bitter herbs. In fact, in, in this whole time, he's establishing a whole, a, a whole week's worth of, of celebration and festival. And he says, for the whole week after this, don't, don't even leaven your bread. Don't do anything with leaven and, and just eat unleavened bread. And he says, because God is going to show up. And he's going to pass over Egypt. And everybody that has the blood on their doors, he's going to pass over. But for those that don't, the destroyer is going to come in and kill the firstborn of every household. I mean, this is what it says in Scripture. Exodus 12, 23 says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer, destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Here, just a few verses later, listen to the way Scripture presents this. This is not light and it's not simple. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That's firstborn children. That's firstborn animals. It affected everything and everyone in Egypt that didn't have the blood on their doors. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. There was, there, was, there was a commotion. There was something that caused Pharaoh, I think, to wake up. He wakes up, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for where there was not a house where someone was not dead. Every house in Egypt suffered that night. Every house lost someone. There's no upbeat music and no vegetable that can make you feel better about this, I don't think. People were dying at the hand of God. So I don't want, I don't want you to misunderstand the, the nine previous plagues. They were, they were devastating. They were, they were, they were horrific. They were horrifying. I mean, they, they, they hurt and these people suffered in them. But, but I think this last one, I mean, obviously something happened. Because Pharaoh is finally broken and Pharaoh says, please go get your people out of here before we all die. And he sends them out. And the Israelites leave. Now, if you know the story, obviously Pharaoh gets a little upset a little later and he decides to follow him and, and God takes care of that. 
and he finishes them. But fast forward some time to this point where here they are. They have, they have walked in, in, in through the, through the sea. They have, they have walked through on dry ground. They have sat at Mount Sinai. They have entered into covenant with God. And here they are sometime later receiving this word from God. Celebrate the Passover. And not just any Passover. Celebrate the Lord's Passover. This day belonged to God. This was His. There is no one else responsible. There was no one else who did work. There was nothing else. No one could point to any other thing. This day was His. And see, the Passover, this Passover, it didn't, it didn't just remember an event. It caused people to remember the God of the event. It, it caused God's people to remember Him. The Passover is not something that they were called to celebrate simply to remember a series of events that led them to this place where they got what they wanted. The Passover was a day to commemorate God. The Lord's Passover. The work He did. The work that He set in motion. The work that He's responsible for. This was His day. And if you consider the Passover, I think in the midst of it, we recognize, we have to recognize that it commemorates God. You see, the Passover, in the Passover, we find the sovereign God. A God who rules. A God who devises plans and a God who executes plans. A God who chooses to show mercy and a God who chooses to give judgment. And a God who has the right to make those choices. We see a sovereign God who is in charge who rules in the Passover we find the God of justice. Pharaoh was a hard-hearted man. In other places in Scripture, it demonstrates that God hardened Pharaoh. And so we're not going to enter into that theological or doctrinal debate right now, but the reality is that there was a hardened heart that resisted or rested in that man and that Pharaoh was walking his own way and doing his own thing. And when God commanded him to obey, he rebelled. And because of his rebellion, God brought judgment. Plagues that were horrific. Plagues that caused suffering. Plagues that killed. You see, we don't recognize this today because we want God to be all about love and fluff and feeling good making us happy and go lucky. And just as long as He does what I want Him to do, then that's the God I want, right? You see, God is a just God. He's perfect and He's holy. And He's a God who commands and expects obedience. And, and He is a God who looks at His creation and sees the fallenness and depravity and rebellion and the hardness of heart and has every right to bring judgment. And in the Passover, in the Passover, I think we recognize and see this God of judgment. The truth is, is that every place that went wrong, all the stories we, we, we lighten up for our kids so that it doesn't give them nightmares and they can still sleep at night and feel okay about God. I mean, even 
in these stories, we, can, we, we have to see, we have to recognize something is drastically wrong. But it's not wrong with God. He's a just God. He's a God with a standard. And we've fallen. And we can't meet that standard. But alongside His justice, in the Passover, alongside His justice, we see a God of mercy. The truth is, He didn't have to let anybody live. He could have wiped them all out. And if someone hadn't, some Israelite hadn't painted blood on his door, he would have felt the wrath and judgment of God and his firstborn would have died and his household would have been affected. But God provided a way that his mercy could be shown, that his, his judgment could be withheld, that his goodness could be sensed as he holds back his judgment. You see, mercy, that's what it's about. Mercy is all about us deserving something but getting something else. It's about God seeing what we deserve. And seeing that we deserve separation, judgment, condemnation, and Him holding it. Holding it back from us. And in the Passover, as those people were given the, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb by which the blood would be the sign for Him to pass over, to, to go on, to leave them alive, and to let them not experience His judgment. In the Passover, we find the God of mercy. And in the Passover, we find the God of grace. You see, who were the Israelites? I mean, who were they? that they got to experience any goodness from God? Who, who, what had they done to deserve Him allowing them to have a sacrificial lamb? What, what, what about them made them acceptable to God? What, why did He decide that they should live and the Egyptians should die? Well, that's His sovereign will. But the beauty of that is not just His sovereign will. The beauty of that is that He decided to act in the best interest of these people. He didn't just withhold judgment. But He provided something they didn't deserve. He gave them something that they didn't deserve. He gave them something they couldn't earn, that they weren't worthy of. It's not like He looked at the Egyptians and the Israelites and He's like, well, I'll take the, worse, the better of the two. You know, it's not like we go to the store and, and, and there's a cereal box that looks like someone crushed it and a cereal box that looks like it came out of the box. Okay, I think I'll take this one because I don't want the crumbs. I don't want the, I don't want the stuff at the bottom of this. I, I, I want a whole box of cereal. God didn't look at these people in that way. He didn't see something better in the Israelites and more worthy than the, than the Egyptians. But His sovereign choice, His sovereign will, and he acted to provide them something good. And, and we don't just see, we don't just see the, the grace of God in that first Passover. We, don't, we, we see his grace exemplified all the way throughout. Think about the day that they're sitting here and, and Moses is writing this and, and they're being read this and told this that you are to, in the first month, uh, the 14th day of the first month, you are to observe the Lord's Passover. 
there's some time between the moment that this is given and the moment that they walk through that sea. They walk out of the sea and they're celebrating and everything's great because now they're out from under bondage. And they get into the desert and everything's good for a little bit, but suddenly they start to get hungry, they start to get thirsty, and they start to complain. And they start to say things like, we probably would have been better off in Egypt. And when Moses goes up on the mountain to hear from the God they're entering into covenant with, what did they do? They formed a golden calf and said, this is our God in which we will worship. But here's God. Sometime later saying, please, commune with me. Celebrate and remember the Lord's Passover. That is an act of grace. Because all that He had done for them, all that they had seen, and yet the stiff-necked, rebellious people, because they weren't getting everything they wanted and it wasn't playing out the way they always dreamed it would, they had no idea they were going to walk around in the desert for a little bit. They didn't have any idea that it wasn't going to be all fluffy and feel good every day. And they had no idea that there were still going to be struggles and things that they had to learn and, and, and sanctification that still had to happen. They had no idea that sometimes God's mercy and God's grace still, because of our fallenness, still comes and shapes us and molds us and feels like the anvil that we mailed metal with. They had no idea. They had no idea that they would have to be so utterly dependent on a God that they would rather rule than be ruled by. You see, when they woke up in the morning and were gathering manna, they had no idea when they entered into this that they were changing one master for another. They had no idea that their food, that their clothes, that their, their direction, every instant and part of their life would be totally dependent on Him. When they were crying out for God to act, they were expecting a God to act and do exactly what they wanted. They had no idea what the desert might look like, what salvation might look like. They had dreams and aspirations and the promise of God that one day the Holy Land, the, the promised land would be provided. They had no idea what it would take to be there, to walk there. I hope as you're sitting here and you're listening to the, to the, the Passover and hearing about the Passover being spoken about, I, I hope that you believers are seeing and recognizing parallels in your own Christian walk. Because the reality is, is that Jesus is your Passover lamb. He's for you. And the truth is, is that we're either going to be washed in His blood and the, and the Spirit of God and God is going to see our lives cleansed in His blood or we are going to face the consequence. You see, in Christ, we find our Passover lamb. Paul, I'm sorry, John the Baptist, when, when he saw Jesus coming towards him one day, Jesus is walking towards him and he sees him and he says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter described our salvation to the early church and he wrote with an express allusion to the Passover lamb. He says, 1 Peter 1, 17-19, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds 
conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And when Paul was confronting the Corinthian church about living sinfully, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a a passage directly uh, that we build an understanding of church discipline from, he says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In Christ, we believers meet our sovereign God, the God who chooses to save. The God who decided to put in place a Passover. A God who provided sanctification. Who provides redemption. Whose desire is to see you and walk with you in relationship. A sovereign God who devises a plan. And a sovereign God who executes a plan. Believer in Christ, you meet the sovereign God. The God who rules. The God who has the right to rule. The God who has who, who sees from the beginning and the end. The God who knows, who was, and who is to come. We meet believers. We meet the God of justice. And we don't think about this too much today. I mean, we've already talked about it a little bit. We, we don't think about it because we like this idea of a God of love. We like love. Oh, it's all about the love as long as you love me the way I want you to love me. I don't want your love if you're trying to make me better. I don't want you to love me sacrificially. I just want you to tell me you love me and like me like I am. Make me feel good about myself, and that's the kind of love I want. You be the person I want you to be, and I will accept your love when I determine it to be the way I want to receive it. That's the way we view it. That's the way we look at it. Well, you see, we meet a God of justice who is just as just as He is merciful and gracious. You see, God still has a standard. And we still have fallen short. God still calls us to something. And we still have a duty to live in. And the God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New Testament. It's not as if, it's not as if all of this doesn't pertain or connect or or it's it's not as if you know in the old testament he was this way but now he's this different god and he loves people now instead it used to be he judged and he hated people that god of justice is still alive today the reason you don't deal with that god of justice is because his wrath is on christ for you believer We meet the God of justice, but we don't feel His wrath because today in Christ you are as close to hell as you will ever be. You are as close to judgment and condemnation, believer. In Christ, you are as close to these things as you will ever be. And we're not really that close. Because the struggles we face, the the difficulties and 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 the problems that we have in life, It's not about experiencing God's wrath. That's about experiencing God's love. Because He didn't save you to leave you where you were. He saved you to make you into the likeness of His Son. He saved you to shape you and mold you so that your reflection, so that people would see Him 
in you so that you would be in His image and that that was marred and, and taken away in the fall would be restored in salvation. Believer in Christ, you know and meet a sovereign God. But His judgment is cast upon His Son, our Passover Lamb. Believer in Christ, we meet the God of mercy because you don't deal with His judgment any longer. One day, when it's all said and done and the, and the work is finished and God makes all things new, He is going to look at you. You are going to be in His presence. And all of this is going to be like a dream and it's going to be, like, it's going to be over and we're going to recognize all that He did in our lives to bring us to this place. And I think one thing we'll certainly recognize and be able to remember is what we deserved and what He held from us and what He put on His Son. See, in fact, as we mature in Christ even today, we talk about this a lot, as, as we mature in Christ even today, as we, as we grow, we, we shouldn't grow bolder and, and, and think that we deserve it more. We shouldn't grow more confident in ourselves, I, I should say. We should grow more confident in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because His judgment stops there. Every believer in this room has met a God of mercy. Believer in Christ, our Passover Lamb, we meet the God of grace. You have met the God who gives based on His sovereign choice to those He decides and gives His goodness and, and allows us to experience something we would and could never deserve salvation, redemption, sonship. He looks on you and smiles in spite of you. He looks on you and approves you in spite of you. He looks on you and says, you are my child. He's adopted you. You belong in His family because of Jesus Christ. Believer in Christ, you have met a God of grace. You see, as with every person in the world, and just as God was giving to these Israelites, I mean, in the Passover, they had a duty to, to observe it. It was a law for them to observe it. But I believe as they would consider what was done in the Passover, the cost, the price, the road to the Passover, I think they found delight in remembering the Passover. And see, and oftentimes we take duty and we take delight and we think that duty is not as impressive as delight. And we think that, oh, if you just worship out of duty, you're not as good a Christian as I am. I'm, 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 let, let, let me just encourage you with this thought. Everyone has a duty to worship. It exists in everyone. It's not just ours as believers. Every person in the world exists to worship God. Therefore, we have a responsibility to worship God. If you're in a place where you're worshiping out of duty, thank God that you're even worshiping out of duty. That is a gift and grace of God because everyone else is rebelling against Him. No one seeks God. Paul wrote that in Romans. No one seeks God. They change the truth for a lie and they worship the created things rather than the Creator. If you are worshiping the Creator, thank 
Him worship out of duty to your heart's content. Now let me challenge you just a little further. If you can't find a light in the duty, then maybe it's because you're not thinking about the cross, but rather thinking like the Israelites did in the desert. It's not going your way. It's not how you planned it. It doesn't measure up to your expectations. I don't think that there's any way we can respond except delight when we consider that God from the very beginning, from before the foundations of the world had a plan in place to provide you and I salvation, to give us redemption and restoration. And that plan was so specific that at a time in history, He chose a people and He provided them this Passover lamb by whose blood they would be given redemption and that they would find their way into freedom. And that would parallel the, the walk and the, and, 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 the, and the work of the cross. You see, the work of the cross didn't start the day Jesus came to earth. The work of the cross had been begun before the foundation of the world. God devised the plan and is executing the plan. And if you're struggling with delighting in spending time in worship, spending a life given to His honor and glory, let me just ask you to consider the cross and all that led to it. Not the whitewashed version that we like to tell our kids about. The version in which we see a Savior who didn't deserve what He got take the wrath for us be beaten, bloodied, mocked. To be hung on a cross as if He was a criminal. That He who knew no sin became sin. So that we could meet this sovereign God. This just God. This merciful God. This gracious and loving God. Delight in that. He saved you. Let's pray. God, I, I know that even as we sit here, I, I, I don't think we can fathom the intensity, the, the devastation, the difficulties faced. I, I don't think that we even I don't think we really even have anything to compare it to because we think in such, well, I guess what we consider to be just uh, cleaned up ways, God. But, but, oh, Father, may we not focus, God, would you help us not to focus on that destruction and, and that horror? Just simply so that we can see it and be silly about it. But God, help us to see that in the midst of that depravity, that brokenness, You worked and You made a way. God, will You help us to see how all of this comes to, to fruition in Christ? Would You help us to see how now we stand? We, we can enter the throne room. We can be in Your presence and you can overlook our depravity and our sinfulness.
because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to recognize that we stand approved because of Him? Would you give us delight? Would you give us delight in, in sharing your truth? Would you give us delight in reading your word? Would you give us delight in singing your praises? Would you give us delight in living every day with you as, as our motive, with you as, our, as our, um, our, our purpose and our desire? God, would you give us delight in sacrificing of ourselves and suffering along with Christ and walking in this walk until the time of exile is over. Always looking forward to the day that we'll be with you. Would you give us that delight? Father, we thank you for the price that you paid for us. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.